Magazine's culture podcast, hosted by me, Nadia Agrawal, and made in partnership with Erios Network. Instagram, like all other social media platforms, is divided into different worlds. Every community or niche interest has its own specific corner. In the last decade or so, in the last six to eight years, I think, more specifically, we've been able to witness the South Asian diaspora lay claim to a sizable portion of it. Glam shots in cultural garb, chai how-tos, sorry rapping tutorials, flyers for identity-specific events, and most notably, diaspora art. When I say diaspora art, I mean specifically social media-friendly, typically digital, art illustrations, depicting South Asian women with or without faces, making statements largely about being othered, being marginalized by the patriarchy, or brown men and aunties more specifically. Pieces that mash up typically South Asian things like, off the top of my head, samosas, mangoes, drimki earrings, saris, bindis, chai, monsoons, vintage Bollywood, with typically Western things like Liechtenstein-esque pop art, Halloween, and rap music aesthetics. I should say that this art doesn't have to be flat 2D illustration, it can also be music, photography, poetry, filmmaking, painting, and even podcasts. Most of this message-heavy art comes from South Asian women and is as such made for South Asian women. There's a feedback loop here. As Zarina Muhammad writes in The White Pubes, The Problem with Diaspora Art, Diaspora art feels tied to a cycle of dealing with the condition of duality that the diasporic body rests in specifically of belonging to multiple places and living a hybridized experience of East and West. A lot of the support this art gets comes from the mere feeling of quote-unquote being seen. The reason why this sort of art remains prolific, why it seems like there are dozens of young artists making similar tracing cutout type art of brown-skinned girls in mong tikas and blue jeans, is because they are creating for a specific audience, one that rarely is depicted in Western art, and also one that is still shaking out the meaning of being part of a diaspora with its own culture. Being seen here is literal and metaphorical. This art makes us believe that we are being perceived whether or not that's true, that Instagram is a sort of safe space to talk about our burdens and our oppressions, but the art itself is rarely as subversive as it promises to be, though that doesn't belay the appetite users have for this work. Four or five years ago, the artist known as Hate Copy came onto the scene. Her pop art-inspired comedic illustrations riffed off of universal brown girl experiences, like dealing with white men who exotified you, fending off overbearing parents, or pretending to be at the library when you're actually out with a boy. Maria Kumar, the artist behind the account, got her start in advertising and brought a clear sensibility to her work. She amassed followers quickly, as well as copycats. Within a few years of her breakout, somewhere between her viral Bad Beatty, Galavera-style face paint trend, and when she put out her book, Trust No Auntie, Hate Copy was besieged by accounts that ripped her style, remixing some of her most popular designs with cruder art and new captions. Hate Copy and her daughters are one corner of the diaspora art section of Instagram, but there are many, many others. Like a lot of visible South Asian spaces, this one is still dominated by cis, light-skinned, typically North Indian voices. 
There have been a lot of developments in recent years, but not enough to reverse these trends. As Zarina says in her essay, and as many others have said in articles, tweets, and Instagram posts, representation can't be the end-all be-all, whether we're talking about politics or art. Art that delivers on aesthetics but lacks the substance of conscious thought doesn't serve viewers further than a quick repost of stories. This ephemeral nature, the weighing of quantity over quality, or neoliberal over radical, makes this sort of content easy to consume, metabolize, and output. It seems to me, as an observer of these trends, that there has also become an undue pressure on young South Asian women living in the diaspora to market themselves through this high-output style of art. Creating this work is just as much about being seen by a community that eats through content quickly as it is about letting others feel seen. This mirrors trends at large in media and other industries where marginalized people are expected to tap their personal experiences for a quick turnaround essay, cover letter, or college application. We are perceived through this narrow lens that requires us to share the intimacies of our lives and hold them up for public scrutiny. Even here we are disposable, quickly ingested and spat out. It's a double-edged sword, as any Canva slideshow creator from this year will tell you. In order to make people care, you have to make your work attractive and easy. But then what? Do shares and likes translate into something more meaningful? Can we share art that is subversive but also shareable? To be honest, these are questions that have always hounded art and social media both. Diaspora artists have shown that they have the capacity for creation, but their commentary is often tired regarding lived experience. It pulls punches, or else looks to be too samey to stand out from the rest. Even the concept of decolonizing in these works has lost its bite. It's become a catch-all bucket for making art doesn't center whiteness, but doesn't necessarily take aim at systems of oppression. But diaspora art isn't the whole story. There are plenty of artists in the diaspora sharing their work on Instagram and finding fans who appreciate the layered stories they're sharing, like Manu Jawaldia. There's always that tension between, I feel we want to be like representative of our culture, but also how to find our very specific identities, even within that. I'll be speaking to Manuja after the break. Be right back. I don't want you anymore, but I'm lying. I wish that you were here. Today we're talking to artist Manuja Waldia, whose standout illustrative style features bright colors and brown-skinned women gathering to share food and space. Her most recent work has crossed mediums into textile and fashion design. Hi Manuja, how's it going? Hi Natya. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you specifically about some of your work that I've seen online because I think that's mostly how we're ingesting art at the moment is through social media, through uh, digital spaces and stuff. But um, I, I'm, I'm always so struck throughout your work, you know, when you were working in more physical spaces with art installations and, um, and art pieces and galleries and things like that, as well as on social media, that you have such a great use of color and everything that you do is very vibrant and it feels like you're working in a language of your own. I'm really curious how you developed your unique style. Um, thank you so much for noticing those things about my work. Um, I feel like um, I'm very expressionist in those ways. I feel color could be in itself a way to convey so many feelings and emotions, right, as an artist. Um, and I feel I was using that in combination with like narrative, um, like a few years ago, and I'm still doing some of that, but slowly I'm starting to explore how I can like begin to use color on its own 
um, and kind of dive deeper into that, right? Like my understanding of it is also getting more nuanced. Yeah. I feel like your palettes are always very warm too. Lots of pinks and oranges and yellows. Are those your favorite colors? Yes, somehow I'm very attached to those. I feel it um, comes from, I think, growing around those colors. Um, yeah, I, I, I get a lot of my aesthetics from noticing my surroundings growing up. Um, so I think those were the colors that um, my, my parents and like our relatives were naturally using in their surroundings. So I feel like I organically try to bring that into my work as well. Yeah, there is something very organic, almost like botanical about it, like a very strong kind of floral undertone. Is it because you grew up somewhere that was very natural? Yes, yes, that's right. Um, and it took me a while to kind of, you know, really own that. Um, I feel I've always felt a connection to nature um, and color subconsciously, and that would show up in my work. But I think as I'm getting older, I'm starting to see um, how, you know, that has always been a part of my identity. Um, I grew up in a really small town in central India called Singrali. Um, so it was like a coal, coal township. Um, and my dad was posted there for like all of my childhood. Um, so yeah, it's like beautiful nature, um, forests of central India. It's a little hilly there, yeah. I, I totally understand about what you say about um, getting older and kind of owning a lot more of like where you came from and a lot more of your own sort of personal origin story. I wonder, uh, was there a barrier to owning it before? Like, was there something that prevented you from being like, no, I'm going to use these colors. I'm going to make these, uh, I'm going to relay these kinds of messages that specifically lean back into where I come from. Like what stopped you before? Um, I think I wasn't stopping myself. It wasn't just, um, I wasn't being really mindful about, you know, where I'm deriving inspiration from. I feel when you start out as an artist, uh, many things that I was expressing were like usually strain, like stream of consciousness, if you will, because I think earlier on, I was more focused on um, the craft part of it, right? Like how, what is the visual language um, rather than focusing more on the narrative of it. But I think as I'm getting like older, um, I'm getting more and more confident about the craft bits of it. Um, so I'm having to like think deeper about what I'm expressing and you know the contents. If that so, makes any sense. No, of course it does. I feel like that's yeah, once you figure out all the technical stuff, then the only thing left to do is to figure out all the sort of metaphysical aspects of your work, right? Yeah, and also I feel starting out there's pressure to, I, I don't know, I don't think it's a universal thing, but I certainly felt um, that I needed to fit in. Um, so I think it takes a while to really understand that, you know, our personal narratives actually have um, a lot of power and we need to, you know, own it um, rather than trying to like fit in. Fit in with other artists, fit in with other people? What do you mean? with the industry with you know what's what the trends are or what's you know work-wise sellability-wise what's doing well um yeah i'm yeah. well i'm super aware of this at least in like literature and publishing but there are these trends in the market where like you know there are certain types of, of books that are selling at a certain period there's like a window for certain experiences to really shine or to have a platform is it the same in like art i think so i think so yeah I feel like um, it, it also depends on the artist. I feel some artists do a really good job of, you know, having that vision um, early in their careers, even, you know, when they've started. 
Um, but it took me a while to, you know, find my own voice. And yeah, I think I'm still figuring it out, but getting more and more sure about that's something that I need to think about too, along with, you know, um, thinking about what the market wants from me. Yeah, I would say this is really surprising to hear that you are still trying to figure out maybe the details of your own voice, because I feel like I see your art everywhere in some ways. Like, I think a lot of the diaspora has, you know, really latched onto your work and used it as a mode for their own self-expression. Like, I think of your art as maybe one of the cornerstones, at least on social media, of like South Asian diaspora, specifically femme, female expression. Um, Oh, thank you, Nadia. That means so much to me. I feel similarly about your work. Oh, thank you. I just, it's so interesting that you're saying that you're still like exploring parts of it and like really nailing a lot of it down because it feels so lived in. It feels so, um, like the vision is very clear, at least from where I'm standing, but it's nice to hear that. It's like, it's as, as humbling as it is to hear that, I feel like it's a very nice thing to internalize as well. Thank you. Yeah. And I feel, um, I, I feel maybe you feel similarly, but there's always that tension between, I feel we want to be um, like representative of our culture, but also how to find our very specific identities, even within that, right? Um, and I feel subconsciously, I was always very aware of that balance. Um, like, yeah, I do want to um, like be representing a larger thing, but also um, show like glimpses of um, my unique world too. I, I know that sounds arrogant, but I feel that's important to preserve as artists. No, I totally agree. I also think, well, firstly, homogeneity is super boring and it's actually like inaccurate and dishonest, right? Like yeah. no one's experiences are the homogenous experience. Yes. Um, especially in the diaspora, it's such a contentious issue because I think a lot of the exported image of India and South Asia more largely that I think the diaspora has internalized that people who live in the West at large have internalized is a very like North Indian, probably Punjabi, Hindi speaking, Hindu, fair skinned identity. And yeah. the amount of people who actually embody that identity in all of those sort of very unnuanced details are, is, is not, those people don't really exist. And like, there's also yeah. or, such a- Or it's hard to find a market for that word because I feel a lot of, um, like like you said, I think there's there's like set ideas of what it should look like in people's mind already, um, and they they aren't even aware of it. It's like all internalized at this point. So I feel to uh, make fresh work that kind of you know breaks those molds, it takes a while for even your audience to register, right? Like you're doing this intentionally, um, and maybe they should be paying attention to it too. Um, so I feel we'll have to like keep going and create a space for ourselves because I don't think that exists right now, right? No, I think that we are in a state of culture making for sure. Like yeah. I think for a long time we were very happy and this is me speaking like unacademically, completely anecdotally, but I think for a long time we were very content with the images that we had been kind of given and yeah. now we're in a state of like making new imagery. Um, mm -hmm. And it is kind of a painful experience too, because you have to like, it's a growth period, right? So like, I think there's a lot of growing pains, obviously, that are part of that. And so it's interesting to see kind of what rises to the surface and what ultimately, you know, doesn't survive, yeah. I think, the kind of like constant editing that we're doing. But um, this is also abstract, but I understand what you're saying completely. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really curious, like, when did you start making this kind of work? Um, I think it was my desire to um, express, um, like, where I come from, my identity, and also a way for me to figure that out as I go along, right? Um, so I feel making works that are very personal to me is a way for me to, like, go in words and, like, dive deeper into who I am. Um, so I think I make, started making works that are like self-authored almost, um, moving away from like commercial illustration to be able to do that. Um, yeah, Th- does that make sense? to? Yeah, you're... so what, did you feel like it was maybe a response to other work that you had to do, like maybe your day job or something? Yeah, like yeah, totally. So I've always had a day job um, forever. Like after graduating, um, I immediately had one. Um, and I was like laid off a month ago, um, unexpectedly too. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, no worries. Um, I feel like I was getting ready to like be independent anyway. Um, the timing was just a little abrupt. Um, so it took a little bit of adjustment, but yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, the, I feel like um, the more like self-authored work was a reaction to me working in like commercial illustration and also a day job where I was, I've been lucky enough to like work with clients that have given me a lot of creative freedom. But I feel if somebody is sponsoring the project, it's never going to be like full creative control or freedom. Um, and as I'm getting older, I feel like that's something that I really value, right? Um, so yes, yeah, so that's why I like started doing my own shop um, and just making artworks for the internet. I feel like that's such a worthy customer as well. Like that's like a worthy patron sometimes. The internet at large is like, it's like where we dump all of our work. <laughs> totally, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think it gives me a lot of room to experiment as an artist, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you illustrate women throughout your work. I would say even first and foremost, they are present in your work. Why is that? Um, I think I'm trying to tell, um, my story, um, right? And I, I, I'm always connected to um, women around me. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to create portals um, or safe spaces almost. Um, like some of my work is derived from memory um, and they probably don't mean a lot to like the audience or the viewer, but these were moments that left like a lasting impression on me. Um, and coincidentally, most of those moments have been around women, like growing up. So it all like kind of comes together in that sense. Yeah, um, I definitely yeah. feel like the figures in your paintings are sort of like characters. And you said a narrative before, but there is like a sense of storytelling that's happening. It makes sense that they would be memories on paper. Yeah, um, and I feel um, also like I could be wrong here um, and it, this could be my ignorance, but growing up, I feel representations of um, like Indian women are very, they can get a little campy, um, right? Like they're either like caricatures or like, it's very rare to find like nuanced, um, like slice of life or smaller moments, um, you know, of joy, bliss, connectivity. So I feel I'm really drawn to those like subtleties that I've experienced being around, yeah. Yeah, the kind of the beauty of the mundane, right? So something that's not necessarily in service to something else, like an archetype or something, some kind of political mission, it's sort of. um, The most recent chapter of your work that I've seen includes embroidery. 
And mm -hmm. I was really curious how you decided to move into that medium because I know I've seen your work include painting, clay, crayons, digital illustration. So where did embroidery come from? Um, so I think embroidery has always been very um, dear to me um, as a way to meditate and still do something creative um, and hands-on. Um, so I learned how to embroider, I think, with my mom and grandmother ever since I was like really little. Um, and I used to do that a whole bunch, um, like between homework and stuff when I was little. I just lost touch um, like in my teenage years. So I, I have been wanting to do things um, that really bring me joy, like especially in the quarantine these days. Um, yeah. So last, last year I had like started making larger works, like really big canvases. Um, but yeah, like this year, I think the quarantine is having an effect on me where I'm wanting to do like smaller, more delicate and like fragile things. I was going to ask, what's it like making during the pandemic for you? It's been good and bad, I would say. Like I, I do feel isolated. Um, I do miss, you know, being around um, my artist friends and, you know, seeing them. Um, but it does give me a lot of time to just like focus on the making part of it, which I really appreciate. Yeah, it is kind of one of those things that waves back and forth, right? Because sometimes the work is inspired by being around people. And sometimes it just needs that isolation to be able to like actually um, manifest properly. So yeah. It's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Totally. Yeah. Um, I think we, we need to stay optimistic and positive about it. Otherwise, it's easy to spiral, I feel. Yeah. Do you feel like there's like maybe undue pressure on you to make during this time? Or do you feel like you just sort of have more freedom than you did before? I feel there's always undue pressure on me since I'm a Capricorn and I'm like <laughs> really, I feel it's, it's an unsettling feeling for me to, you know, like rest, but I feel that's so important. And I'm forcing myself now to um, get into a habit of these periods of lull and just like spacing out, doing nothing, going to the lake and, you know, just sitting there by myself and just meditating, I feel is also part of creating the work, right? Definitely those periods of rest go into the work, just like the periods of work do. Do you ever, I was, this is just sort of maybe a side question, but being online as you are and making art that does exist in a digital space, do you, do you feel pressure to sort of make for a digital audience and to be prolific for a digital audience? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that. So I, when I was younger, I would feel that as almost like an angst, um, but like I'm getting better at like handling it, I feel. Um, there's always going to be like an expectation of your work should be relatable for your audience, right? Because that's what they sign up for. Um, and not everyone um, is going to be okay with me like experimenting endlessly. Um, so I, I enjoy both. I feel like there are some pieces that I work on like intentionally for the shop. Um, and there are some pieces that are just for me. Um, and over time, I feel um, even those are received really well, but it just takes a while for um, people to kind of understand what I'm trying to do. Um, yeah. So like you said, like earlier, I think it's a bit of a growing pain um, when, when you try something new as an artist or something that, you know, they're not, um, that's not expected. Are you working on anything right now that we can look forward to seeing? Yeah, um, lots of stuff. So I'm making more um, things in collaboration with Prableen. Um, she's at the Solo Girl on Instagram. 
um, we did like a, a dress pre-pandemic, um, but then the lockdown happened and that was in hold. Um, so now we're getting back to doing more of that. Um, and I'm also doing like smaller meditation artworks that look nothing like my work so far, but they're these like really mindfully made drawings, um, which are a way for me to meditate too, since I'm super bad at like sitting down and just meditating. It has been so nice talking to you today. Where can our listeners find you online? I think on Instagram mostly. Um, I don't have a Twitter. And then my shop is waldiaandco.com. Great. Definitely check it out. It was so lovely talking to you, Manuja. Looking forward to seeing more of your work. Um, and we'll catch you next time. Oh, thank you. The Cardamom Pod is made by Kajal Magazine in partnership with Erios Network. Aziz Adib is our producer with help from Jivika Verma. Our music is by Tasneem from their EP, Just Before the World Ends. Until next time, keep an eye out for evil eyes. Powered by ACAST.